Heads up listeners, on this episode, we're going to be discussing eating disorders, eating disorder recovery, and diets. If those aren't topics you're ready to listen to, skip this one and come back. We get it. The question that started our deep dive into diet culture this month felt simple enough. I was pitching an article idea for our upcoming month of written content on A Sweat Life and flippantly threw out the idea how to tell the difference between a diet and a lifestyle. At the time of doing this introduction to A Sweat Life's podcast, We Got Goals, that question reminds me so much of how to lose a guy in 10 days that I can't even stand it. Nevertheless, I asked it, and Kristen Guile, Chief Content Officer at A Sweat Life, responded with, can you name a lifestyle? One long pause later, and I could not, in fact, name a lifestyle. So a new question emerged. If diets are making us obsess over food and are shown time and time again not to work, what are we supposed to eat? I'm Gina Anderson-Cohen, founder and CEO of A Sweat Life, and this is the third installment in our deep dive into diet culture. This week, I interviewed Dr. Alexis Konison, a clinical psychologist and certified eating disorder specialist in private practice in New York City. She's a sought-after speaker, a researcher who has published in peer-reviewed journals, and is widely viewed as an expert on the topics of mindful eating, body image, and diet culture in the media. She's also the founder of the Anti-Diet Plan, a weight-inclusive online eating program, and is the author of The Diet-Free Revolution. You'll find all of those resources in the show notes, by the way. And it was midway through the interview with Dr. Conison that I realized that the question itself, if diets are bad, what are we even supposed to eat, is rooted in diet culture. Allow me to elaborate. Dr. Conison's client work is in shaking up what we've accepted to be normal. That norm is diet culture. And its overarching idea is that if we fit a certain type of body, we'll be happy and diets are the way to get there. And because of that, we spend so much of our lives looking in a mirror and feeling dissatisfied with our bodies. 90% of women report body dissatisfaction, Dr. Conison shared. So we've been taught to obsess over our bodies and food so much that we've muted our body signals to the point where I ask the question, if we're not supposed to diet, what are we supposed to eat? Stop and think about that for a second. At the top of our survival needs, we have oxygen, food, and water. We're not stopping and saying, wait, if no one tells me how to breathe, how am I going to inhale? That's lunacy. You just inhale because your body knows how and because you need it to live. That made me think back to my intermittent fasting years. Yes, timed starvation. When we'd started an offshoot tech company from a sweat life a few years ago, my travel ramped up and I was hungry for a sense of control. An intermittent fasting lifestyle will be the way I thought I'd read about leaders I respected in tech boasting about their morning routines and their fasting windows, and I'd stand in all-male circles with investors and peers at conferences and hear the same thing, 11 to 7 or noon to 8, referencing our eating windows. I don't want to be like, the cool kids were doing it, so I did it, but you guys, it felt like the male tech version of sitting at a lunch table and talking about why you're not eating carbs. Katie Heron starved for 16 hours a day, so I starved for 16 hours a day. I spent about two years living with a constant clock running, fasting or eating, fasting or eating. Coincidentally, I only questioned it when we had a registered dietitian talk to a sweat life about intermittent fasting for women. And the studies that she shared were the scientific equivalent of a do not enter sign. Higher stress was one key side effect that she named. And considering that stress was one thing I wanted less of in my life, I stopped fasting immediately. So last lifestyle out the door, what should I eat? I asked Dr. Conison. And she physically recoiled at the should of it all and expressed her reluctance to prescribe another one. A should, she reminded me gently, is basically just another diet. So in this episode, Dr. Conison shares some of her tools for getting back in touch with the cues your body intelligently has built into it. Hunger, cravings, and fullness all have signals in your brain and body that take a little work to get back in tune with. Dr. Conison's work centers around first accepting that you can have what you want in the body you're in now, instead of waiting for a certain number on the scale to date, to travel, to work out, to go after the job you want, and then getting back in sync with all of the things our bodies already know that they need. In our interview, we talk through the 10-step process in her book, Diet-Free Revolution, that helps you to do just that. We also dive in to how her start in obesity research led her to dedicate her life to anti-diet work instead. Here I am 
with Dr. Alexis Konison. Alexis Connison, you are a researcher, you are an eating disorder specialist, um, and you are the author of the book, The Diet-Free Revolution. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on We Got Goals. Let's first dive into how you ended up working with humans who are going through eating disorders. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I started working with humans with eating disorders actually through the lens of being very much immersed in diet culture. And um, I got my doctorate in psychology and really set off for this career in weight management and working in obesity research. And I myself was very much steeped in this fat is bad mentality and, you know, set off, um, you know, on the journey of helping other people manage their weight and thus cure them of every problem they could possibly have. Um, and thankfully, like not too long into my career, I realized that none of that works and that most of what I had been taught and what I had believed up to that point really wasn't true and was not supported by research. And I had a, a real pivot and started um, working from a weight inclusive lens. And eventually that did lead me to working with people with uh, eating disorders. Mostly um, my practice specializes mostly in working with people with binge eating disorder and disordered eating. And I was, so I've, had the wonderful opportunity of reading your book, The Diet-Free Revolution. Um, I think it is such an incredible tool because it answered the exact question I wanted to close out this month's deep dive with, which is, if we're not supposed to diet, <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Which I'd like to ask you a question. Is that itself <laughs> diet culture? Well, and the therapist in me was about to say, well, it's not about supposed to, <laughs> because I really do think that whenever we get into the should mentality, that's a red flag right there. So, you know, I think that we're all on different, you know, paths and it's really about finding what works for us. But we know, you know, based on research of many, many people that for most people, dieting is not going to work. And it's linked with a high risk of different kinds of negative health, you know, psychological and physical health outcomes and very low rates of um, effectiveness. So, you know, maybe it does make sense if you're doing something over and over again, that's not working to reevaluate and see if there's something that would work better for you. Yeah. And I, I really loved the approach that you talk through in the book that you take with clients, um, almost of, well, first of all, coming to accept, like, if this is your body and your goal is to feel good or your goal is to be healthy, um, can you accept what your body is today and still achieve that goal? <laughs> um, I, I think that's a really magical mindset. Yeah, I think that I worked with so many people and I have over the course of my career worked with so many people who, you know, are living their life on pause, really feeling like, you know, it's not okay to do the things they want to do right now in their current body. They have to lose weight in order to travel or see, you know, date or um, ask for a promotion at work or whatever, you know, be healthier in terms of like changing some, you know, health promoting behaviors or whatever it is. And the fact is like, we spent so much of our life waiting for that ideal time where then everything's magically going to materialize. And, and so many people never get there. And, you know, I worked with clients over the course of my career who were in their seventies and their eighties who are still like, kind of feel like their life is just waiting to begin once they lose weight. And at a certain point, I think it makes a lot of sense to say, like, we don't know what the future is going to hold. None of us know how much long, you know, how long we have on this planet and how, how we want to spend our time is a really precious commodity. And, you know, can we kind of open our eyes to the reality of where we are right now and turn towards ourselves with compassion and start living the kinds of lives we want to live now while we're here, while we have the time? Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I, I really loved and connected with in your book was you sharing, and I am certain with consent, <laughs> stories from clients um, and, and their kind of backstory of how they ended up in your office. And one thing that really stood out to me um, was the way you told their sort of childhood story too. So it's not just about them right now and their adulthood, it's also about the families. Um, can you kind of speak to like the, our histories, our personal histories with our families and how that plays into how we look at our bodies and diets for the rest of our lives? 
Yeah. And I'll say that the um, stories I included in the book were composites of themes that I've heard over and over again. So they're not specific clients. And a lot of it is taken from my own personal life too, and put into these kind of fictionalized characters. But I think that, you know, they felt real to me. Yeah. Good. That was (laughs) the intention. That was the intention. Um, And I think in a way they are real because it, it, it's incredible kind of some of these same things that you see over and over and over again, you know, over the 10 years or so that I've been doing this work. Um, they're definitely, everybody's unique. And I love that. That's what keeps therapy interesting. But it is also interesting to see these same kinds of themes, you know, arise again and again. And I think that a lot of it is cultural is that, you know, we see the same things arising because these are the things that we've been taught, that we've been indoctrinated, that we internalize in different ways. And I think that our childhood histories, you know, can have a lot of impact on how we feel about our bodies. And, um, you know, this was especially salient for me personally, because I was raised in a home with a lot of chronic dieting. I watched my mother go on and off different plans my entire life and really being intensely critical about her own body. And even though she wasn't directly critical about my body, it gave the sense that, you know, a a grown up woman's, you know, woman's job. um, And really my, and my dad was a dieter too. So I don't want to say it's just women, but it, you know, as, as, you know, a girl and a woman, it gave me the sense that my job in life was to shrink myself, to try to be Mm -hmm. as small as possible, because that's, what's going to make me valuable and desirable and lovable. And, you know, all the things that I was seeking. So, you know, I included that in the book, because as I said, a lot of these composite characters, um, have a lot of me in them as well. Um, But I think a lot of us start getting the message that our body is bad or that we can't be trusted, that we have to manage our eating in some way, starting at very young ages. And I think it's, you know, I don't want to say universal, but I think it's very common. I mean, we see the way that we start talking to kids around food and, you know, you have to have two more bites of your Brussels sprouts in order to have your dessert, or, you know, you have to clean your plate or don't eat too much of this or have more of that. And it it really creates this, um, sense of distrust in our bodies and that we start to disconnect from these internal cues that we're naturally born with the sense of just knowing like when we're hungry, what we want to eat, eating until we feel satisfied and then moving on with life. Um, So, you know, I think that it starts very young and to varying degrees in terms of the body shame that we are raised with in, in this culture and in our families and oftentimes raised by parents who themselves have been struggling with issues around food and body image. Yeah, I know for for myself, when I reached a certain age, I I mean, I remember as a child, my mom, we've talked about this, and I love you very much, mom, and I know you listen to the podcast. Um, When I reached a certain age, I started to see in myself the things my mom was criticizing in her own body. And you kind of have that moment of realization of like, oh, am I supposed to hate this too? Um, And so when you get to that point, it's it's a good time to like talk it out with somebody. (laughs) Yeah, sure. And it's really, you know, research suggests that the most important, one of the most important predictors of how a child as they enter adulthood is going to feel about their body is how their mother feels about her own body. So I know, you know, a lot of us say, well, we're not going to criticize our own kids. Like we've, you know, we've been there, we've done that. And certainly my mother, you know, herself was raised in a very, by a very critical mother and really, you know, set out an intention not to be directly critical of me, but seeing the value put on thinness generally and the criticism she had of her own body, you know, kids, you know, see, see what we do, not as we say, or whatever Mm -hmm. that saying is. And I think they really are like sponges. Kids just absorb it all. And it has a profound impact. So I think that starting to address these issues for ourselves, for those, those who may be listening, who do have children is such a gift to our kids because it, transmits through the generations and can break that um, intergenerational cycle of body hatred. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things I think, well, I, I could talk all day about learning to love our bodies, and I think we should. <laughs> but what, one of the themes I really, I found as profound and powerful in the book was just how many conditions are ignored um, due to fatness. And let's put a pin for a second, um, in the conversation. And can you please explain why you chose to use the word fat and why we'll use the word fat in this conversation? Yeah. So I thought a lot about how, what language to use to describe, you know, body types in the book, especially as someone who has thin privilege, you know, I, 
I really was tried to be very thoughtful. And I talked to a number of people um, in the fat activist movement from the health at every size movement around what kind of language they felt was most acceptable. And I decided to use the word fat, which is used in the spirit of the fat acceptance movement of reclaiming that word as a neutral term, as a neutral descriptor. So, you know, I think that often fat is seen as an insult because of fat phobia, because we live in a culture that teaches us that fat is bad. And there's a movement to reclaim that and just kind of say fat is a description of someone's body size. It doesn't, you know, it's not better or worse or more valuable or less valuable. It's just a neutral description. So I use the book, the term in the book, um, in that spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for the rest of this conversation, you'll hear us describe um, folks as fat or uh, a body size as fat. We may say things like living in larger bodies too, but um, that's that's the why, my friends. <laughs> but I, I also do want to acknowledge that I know that word holds a lot of pain and trauma for a lot of people. So, you know, it was it was an interesting experience writing a book. You kind of have to pick pick a term and go with it. But mm-hmm. when talking to like actual live human beings, I do try to have a conversation about what kind of language they like to use to describe their body and defer to that. So I know that there are people who are listening who might have a reaction to the term fat and that's totally okay. And it's, if you're not there in terms of wanting to use it for yourself or reclaiming it, or that's, you know, everybody has the choice, you know, ability to choose what language feels best for them. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. And I, I also like the opportunity to choose your own descriptors too. Mm-hmm. I think that is empowering. Um, okay. Back to the medical system. We, you, you spent some time talking about how in your groups and in the medical system at large, um, folks who had come to you and were in your anti-diet group um, had described how various conditions had essentially been missed because they'd been prescribed weight loss rather than actually given the test they needed or the diagnosis they needed. And we know now that this is incredibly prevalent in the medical system. Um, So can you talk to how you've seen that show up and how how that impacts um, folks living in larger bodies? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really pervasive in the medical system. And I think that, you know, we see it coming from the top down in terms of the recommendations from the American Medical Association, which as I talk about in my book, have been heavily influenced by the you know, financial interests of the weight loss industry and the pharmaceutical industries. And unfortunately, you know, it promotes doctors are being taught this idea that being fat is essentially a death sentence and that losing weight is the overall most important thing that people can do for their health. So they've been taught to promote this kind of weight loss at any, any cost um, way of treating people. And what ends up happening is that people fat people go into the doctor's office and maybe they're, you know, going in for a sore throat or joint pain or, you know, a broken toe or whatever is going on. And it kind of doesn't matter what their presenting issue is. They're diagnosed as fat and told to lose weight. And basically all the other health problems are discounted or attributed to, oh, when you lose weight, that'll get better, you know, just lose some weight. And and I'm sure that that will go away. And that's actually not an evidence-based treatment, you know, because there's not a lot of research that that suggests that people can lose weight and keep it off long-term. And also not a lot of evidence to show that that's a cure-all for every kind of medical issue that people are struggling with. And what ends up happening is we see a lot of misdiagnoses and people coming in with complaints um, of symptoms that are consistent with, you know, eventually a cancer diagnosis, but they're told, oh, it's just your weight, you know, just lose some weight and, and that'll take care of it. And then people, you know, wait until... Um, you know, oftentimes these diagnoses aren't made until the illness is far more progressed and the prognosis is much worse. And then we say, you know, well, fat people have worse health outcomes. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that they're not being diagnosed correctly at earlier stages of illness where things are easier to treat. And then also the horrible treatment that people get at the doctor's offices leads to avoidance of doctors, which again, makes a lot of sense. Like if you're treated horribly and shamed when you go into the doctor's visit, like that's a pretty unpleasant place to be. And I wouldn't want to go back there. So people tend to, fat people tend to avoid preventative medical care. Oftentimes when they do try to even get preventative medical care, you know, the facilities can't accommodate them or doctors aren't trained to do procedures on larger bodies. So there's just really pervasive weight-based discrimination that goes on in the doctor's office. And then of course, like every time we hear about a fat person with a bad medical outcome, it's like, oh, well, because they were fat, that's why they died or that's why they were sick or, you know, so it becomes, it's really like this, um, 
you know, kind of gaslighting system where people are blamed for their own discrimination. Yeah. Um, isn't that nice? <laughs> isn't that nice? So I, I think what's, what's really interesting. So we, we talk a lot about essentially this kind of hamster wheel that you're describing now, like, um, Folks don't want to go to the doctor and thus their conditions get worse. And when they do go to the doctor, the doctors prescribe them weight loss, but no like specifics. So it's essentially they're left to their own devices to find a lifestyle change. Um, I put air quotes around that for the listeners at home (laughs) so that you understand my tone. Um, and that's honestly what le- what led me to start searching for if if we're not supposed to be on a diet, um, if diets are in fact bad for us, what are we supposed to do? And the the supposed to is the big question. But my question for you, Alexis, is um, before we jump in to the actual plan of a of a diet free life, um, let's let's talk quickly about the physical impact of diet on a human being, which you cover a lot in your book. What does it do to us to be on this kind of roller coaster of diets? So, you know, and I want to emphasize that I think that the, there's an impact of dieting both from the, the perspective of actually restricting the food intake, but also the mental restriction, this sense that I can't have something, um, you know, I'm not allowed to creates a whole psychological cycle in and of itself, even if you're actually eating those foods, just that very idea, I shouldn't be eating this, I'm not supposed to. Um, but we see that dieting is associated with a whole host of negative health incomes, including an increased risk for eating disorders and disordered eating, weight cycling, you know, the most people who, who go on a diet because we know that diets aren't sustainable over the long term. People tend to lose weight over, you know, the short term over, you know, the first few months. But then when we look at the outcomes of like one year or two years after um, being on a diet, people have, you know, rebounded. So you've lost weight and then gained it back. And when most people who diet tend to be chronic dieters, I think the average dieter goes on between three to four diets every single year. So Yeah. So we're looking at people who are, you know, losing weight and then gaining and then losing and gaining. And that has a toll on our, you know, body as well. And it has a toll on our psychological makeup because each time, you know, we lose, we kind of go on this high and then we regain it and we feel like a failure and we blame ourselves and feel like it's our fault. And we're just kind of being tossed around on this, you know, roller coaster. Um, and, you know, that has, has, has its consequences. So, you know, all of that can be linked also with psychological outcomes, including increased risk of depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, um, you know, difficulties with body image, relationships, sexual issues. So it can become very all-consuming. And, and that all-consuming feeling too, you, you address in the book as well. And, and I think the way you kind of put words to, to what a lot of us have experienced, when you were on a diet, your life is diet. Your job is diet. You're thinking about it constantly. And by giving that up, you're freeing up a lot of brain space, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the people have different extremes of this, but I think that whenever we're on a diet, at least some portion of our mental energy is going to to what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat. And, you know, dieting, I'll also say is fighting against our body. So our body has a well-equipped, like, appetite regulation system that's trying to guide us in terms of like, I'm hungry now, we should eat, or this seems yummy, I want to eat this. And it's very exhausting to fight against that because those signals have been, you know, developed through eons of evolution to be really strong because it's literally what's keeping us alive. It's making us feed ourselves. So when we're spending, you know, when we're trying to fight against that, like it's incredibly distracting to be hungry and not be eating or to be craving, you know, that delicious looking cupcake that your coworker brought into the office and just kind of like, you know, and say, we're not allowed to have it. And then we're thinking about it all day long. And that impacts, you know, that's like a cognitive load that we're carrying that impacts, our ability to like fully, you know, think straight and to focus on the things that are most important in our lives. Yeah. So, yes, uh, when we can free ourselves from dieting, you know, one of the things that I think is most impactful is that it opens up a lot of mental energy that we can then dedicate to the things that like really are most important in our lives. 
you know, like changing the world. Um, exactly. And I have to say, you know, I think it's intentional that we have a system that has like over 90% of women feel dissatisfied with their body. And I think it's like 45% of men, something like that. So when we have a system that's invested in over 90% of women feeling that they need to change their body and thus spending a lot of their mental resources and energy in dieting and trying to, you know, improve ourselves. Like I, I, I have to say, I think that's intentional that we're not fully focused on doing other things that might really change the world. Yeah. Yeah. If we're, if we're stuck in a system of, sh- of shrinking, like how can we think about everything else? <laughs> it's exhausting to be hungry in that way too. Um, do you remember your very last diet, by the way? I, I don't know if I remember my very last diet for me. I, you know, I spent so much of my life was just about, it was like this habitual, like, you know, it, it wasn't like I'm going to do Atkins or slim fast or this or that, but just these like very ingrained rules of like, I shouldn't eat these foods. And like, these foods are like the okay foods. And every meal would kind of be this process of like, am I going to be good or am I going to be bad? And I do remember the moment where my thinking around that shifted. And it was um, at a mindful eating retreat where I was first exposed to the health at every size philosophy and introduced to the idea that diets don't work and um, not at the retreat. Unfortunately, that was a very weight focused retreat, but there were people there who were involved in the movement. And it was this very simple question or statement around the idea that like, well, we know that diets don't work. And it had literally never occurred to me that diets don't work. I always thought like, of course diets work, you know, I'm just doing it wrong. I can't seem to figure out how to, how to do it, but of course this is the path. And, um, you know, I have to say like from that moment, things started to shift. I mean, obviously it takes time and these patterns are very ingrained, but, um, you know, I don't think, I think that my whole way of thinking about food from then has, has shifted. And then it's been a number of years of kind of integrating everything. Yeah. I, I love, what was it, what was it like for you to kind of have that moment of like, oh wait, it's not me. It's the system. Yeah. Well, it was like, initially, you know, I kind of discarded it and was like, that doesn't make any sense. Of course, diet, you know, of course diets work. And again, I was very invested in that philosophy. Like I was working in obesity, quote unquote, obesity research. I was, had, you know, just finished my doctorate and was planning for this career in weight management. I was presenting research and like invested in this career path of, you know, weight loss. So initially, you know, I I don't want to say I discounted it, but I was like, that can't be right. But it rattled around because I knew for myself, it was true. I knew that dieting had never worked for me. And the idea of what if I just ate what I wanted and, you know, paid attention and tried to enjoy food and live my life, like that made a lot of sense. And from there, I started to research and tried to, you know, understand more about like the data because I tend to be kind of a data driven person. Um, And it really is very compelling. Yeah. And so I, before we started recording, (laughs) I told you that I was like aghast at the sheer volume um, for our listeners at home. I am holding up Lexus's book. um, And I was just really like impressed by the sheer volume of research um, in the book. So talk to me about from that point of, aha, we know that diets don't work to writing the book, kind of what went into what's now kind of your life's work. Yeah. So it was, you know, I would say it's been almost close to 10 years since I initially had the idea for the book. And so much has changed during that time. When I first started writing this, the book proposal and kind of pitching it to agents, I got so much feedback around, you know, um, like you can't tell people it's okay to be fat. That's dangerous. That's, you can't say that. Um, So, you know, people are like, okay, you know, I like this book, but like, can you just say that people lose weight at the end? And I was like, no, that's, (laughs) that's totally not what this is about. But, you know, I think that it's, now there's so many really wonderful anti-diet books and resources out there. Um, I think it speaks to how our culture has changed because, you know, 10 years ago, this was a completely foreign idea that was seen, you know, again, as dangerous to tell people to accept their body and to, you know, just listen to their body. Um, 
So, you know, the book, I, I, in a way, I'm glad, uh, I don't know if I wholeheartedly will say that I'm glad it took me 10 years to write the book, but it did give me a chance to go through my own process because when I first was wanting to write the book, you know, um, mindful eating and the health at every size movement was newer to me. And Mm -hmm. I think there's so many layers to understand. And I still am doing a lot of learning and understanding, especially around the intersections of different, you know, places of marginalization, um, and the, the ways that this all impacts our relationship with our body. Um, so, you know, the process though, of writing the book, I think was very much, you know, I can't, when I actually wrote the book, which was a process that took me, you know, I did it over the course of about six months. And I really tried to think about how can we appeal to someone rationally, but also emotionally, because I think that our relationship with food, it both, you know, a lot of people kind of, a lot of the clients I would work with at least would kind of say like rationally, like I, I get that diets don't work, or I get that. I should accept my body. That sounds like a very lovely idea for someone else. Mm -hmm. So kind of how can we get people to connect emotionally? And I felt that through stories is how people connect. And I think that ultimately our relationship with food is an emotional thing. So I wanted to include the stories there, but also the research, because there's a lot of people like me who are like, what are you talking about? Diets don't work. I'm my doctor told me to go on a diet. I hear on the news that I should diet. Um, You know, my mom said that a diet worked for her. So, you know, I felt like we had to kind of play both sides and give some of the research and the stats too. Yeah. And I I think you did a a really great job of that. And it's honestly, um, talking with you, I are actually reading the book and realizing that the question of like, okay, (laughs) if I'm not supposed to diet, what am I supposed to do? I realized in like chapter, let's say like chapter three by chapter three, I was like, this is a question because of diet culture. (laughs) This is a question of someone who was on diets for years and years and now is looking for like okay, I'm just listening to food cues. Like, what does that mean? But let's take a step back. I want, I want to talk through what it takes for a human being to get back in touch with what their body wants and needs. You start with mindfulness. Can you talk through why? Yeah. So I feel personally, mindfulness is one of the most powerful tools to help us, you know, really come back home to ourselves, to come back home to our body. And Something I also had in mind when I was writing the book was I felt a lot of people, especially who are finding out about like the anti-diet movement or mindful eating or health at every size or intuitive eating, you know, finding out about these ideas, like from following people on social media, come to this place of like, well, okay, so diets don't work. I'm just going to listen to my body. And then they're like, oh, I can't listen to my body. I don't, I don't know what that means. And this doesn't work at all. I'm going back to dieting. So, you know, I felt that there was a need for really more structure, you know, around, okay, I, you know, ready to try something different than dieting, but what does that actually look like? So my hope is that the plan that I kind of lay out in my book is a little bit more structured in a way to mimic the structure of dieting, because I think there's a safety and a security in that. And sometimes when people are transitioning away from dieting, it's helpful to also have a structure in terms of here are some steps that you can do to help shift your relationship with food versus this, what can feel very overwhelming of this vague sense of just listen to your body. So I start with mindfulness because I think that mindfulness is really like, um, I think of it as an antenna in a way, like, um, I, in the book, I talk about that we have an internal GPS system. So like our body has a navigation system hardwired that can guide our eating and guide us in many other ways as well. And that over the years through diet culture, we've kind of separated from this internal navigation system and we can't really hear it anymore. And, you know, it's almost like you're driving in your car and you're trying to go somewhere and you don't know exactly how to get there. And you have your navigation system on, but maybe the navigation system is turned down really low and you're blaring, you know, really loud music over the navigation system. And we feel lost. We don't know how, how to get there. And And, you know, diet culture is kind of that loud music that's playing over the navigation system and mindfulness helps us, you know, turn up the volume on our internal guidance and turn down the volume on diet culture, that kind of interference that makes it hard to hear. So I really do think that mindfulness is the foundation of where to start because it helps build that muscle in our brain that will help us become more present and aware. And for people who may not be familiar with mindfulness, I'll just say mindfulness is really the process of being 
fully present and aware in the current moment with a sense of non-judgmental observation. So um, it starts off with just noticing what's happening. And, you know, to me as a psychologist, as a therapist, noticing is the first step to change because anything that's happening outside of our awareness, we have very little control over. So when we can start to notice and bring into our full awareness what's going on with our body, with our mind, with our eating, we can make choices about how we want to move forward. And that includes also, you know, how we talk to ourselves and, you know, the things that the internal dialogue that we have going on all the time as well. Yeah. And the internal dialogue is something you address a lot in the book because the voices in our head, we all have heard the the old saying of talk to yourself like you'd talk to a best friend, but we don't do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially when it comes to food. Um, so can can you talk through how you sort of reteach people through mindfulness and just through positive self-talk to kind of notice that voice and flip it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say that it's more about noticing and observing and choosing where to focus, then flipping it if that doesn't feel authentic to you. So I feel like a lot of the times we kind of um, hear a lot of like, you know, the, the, the term even positive self-talk. And it's this idea that, you know, you notice yourself saying critical things like, I hate my body and you're supposed to flip it and say, I love my body. Or, you know, I, maybe the thought is like, I look terrible in these jeans and you're supposed to flip it and say, I love the way that I look in these jeans. These jeans look fabulous on me. And for a lot of people, like that just feels like a lie. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're not feeling, and I don't think that we always have to feel good all the time and that's Mm -hmm. a, you know, natural state either. But, you know, instead of kind of lying to ourselves or having to turn every thought positive, if we can just start to notice the dialogue and say, okay, I'm feeling really critical about myself right now. What do I need? Or where do I want to move forward? Or can I just focus on my breath for a moment or two? It can help us create distance between ourselves and our thoughts so that we're not just you know, in it. Like, I think often we're kind of like in the river swimming with our thoughts and mindfulness is something that I think allows us to get out of the river, get out of the stream, see our thoughts as something that's a little bit separate that we don't necessarily have to believe as the truth. And we can recognize it as even like a symptom of, you know, I'm being really hard on myself right now. I must be having a hard time. I was like, I must Mm -hmm. be struggling with something. What do I truly need in this moment? Mm -hmm. I, and I love that too, because we're, I mean, the catch and flip is, is great for things like I'm going to, I'm going to fail at this presentation. Like that's not about like who I am as a person, (laughs) but, but when you truly believe something terrible about yourself as a person, like you have to learn over time how to like look at those thoughts as like an invasive species. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I often think about it as, you know, instead of trying to push away the thoughts, which also has the effect of like, the more that we try to think about something, even if it's to make it go away, the more power those thoughts have, but just to kind of shift our focus. So can we allow those thoughts to, to be there, but maybe be more in the background of our mind instead of being, you know, in the driver's seat of the car of our mind, can they be like a passenger in the way back, maybe in the third row? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Bring that passenger. Okay. So let's, let's get to hunger. Um, so once we kind of cue in on mindfulness and mindfulness is a part of the the plan throughout, once you sort of get back in tune and, and come back to center, um, you learn how to get in tune with your hunger signals again, and you talk about brain and body signals. Can you, can you break those down? How, um, how we've learned to mute them and how we can get back in tune with them? Yeah. So, you know, I think that Uh, And in the book, I go into some of the physiology because I think it's important for us to understand and respect that like our hunger signals and our fullness and taste and other things are like these very strong, you know, biological mechanisms and fighting against them really does tend to be a losing battle. And we don't need to fight against them because they're Mm -hmm. signals that are trying to guide us. They're trying to help us. And, you know, hopefully my hope is that in describing some of the physiology and just like how damn incredible our bodies are and that they have this wisdom inside of us, we can actually start to honor that and respect it and work with our bodies, you know, in collaboration on the same team, instead of trying to fight against ourselves all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I start with hunger, which is one of the things a lot of my clients will say, like, I really don't know when I'm hungry and when I'm not. And, um, 
you know, again, I think when we spent so much time fighting against those signals or pushing them away or saying, well, it's, you know, seven o'clock now it's too late to eat because my intermittent fasting window is closed or whatever these rules are that we tell ourselves, um, we start to dampen those signals. So, you know, again, mind the general mindfulness practice starts to bring it back out. And then we can start to recognize really like, what do we experience when we feel hunger? What do we feel in our belly? And we can start to feel hunger. We can use some mindfulness skills to really try to bring our awareness to the belly sensations and to recognize, um, you know, what are the sensations that you feel as an individual? And it can vary some from, you know, person to person, but it's a very complex, like physiological mechanism um, includes like hormones that are sent out and a whole bunch of stuff. That's pretty awesome of how our body functions. Yeah. It's, it's honestly reading that part of the book. I was like, why did we ever think that we were more powerful or smarter than our body that's evolved over all of this time? <laughs> like, I'm smarter than my body, so I'll cut carbs. <laughs> it doesn't, when you think about it, it really doesn't make sense. And, um, you know, I think it's like, I, I just, one of my favorite things when I was researching for this book was the parts of just researching, like how our body works. And I'm in awe of how incredible our body is and like why we would ever think that we need to try to control that or overpower it. It mm -hmm. makes zero sense to me. I know. But again, we're mm -hmm. fixing a broken system now. <laughs> and the next cue, so after you kind of get back in touch with what your body is telling you, why you think you're hungry, why you feel you're hungry, the next thing that you teach people how to do is to feel full mm -hmm. <laughs> and to know kind of the, the fullness scale, which you break down. Can you talk through how we've learned to dampen fullness over time and how you can get back in touch with it too? Yeah. So, and I think that a lot of people tend to also have a lot of like fear and anxiety around, I don't say fullness, but also, you know, hunger, but we have this idea that like, it's this horrible thing to feel full or that if we feel full, we're, you know, we should only feel like the tiniest bit full and, <laughs> you know, any more than that. And we've like, you know, quote unquote overeaten or our gluttonous. And then the moral judgments and labeling comes into you. And I think that, you know, fullness is associated with like gluttony, which is a moral sin. And, um, you know, so there's, there's so much that goes on here, but again, when we get back to basics, you know, fullness is a very natural physiological symptom that our body shows to guide our eating, to let us know that we've had enough to eat. And, um, you know, there are different levels of fullness and different levels of hunger. So in the book, I go through a hunger scale and a fullness scale, which I give some samples of what people commonly experience at the different points. Cause again, like a lot of people come in and it can feel overwhelming to think about what do I feel when I feel hungry or what do I feel when I feel full? Because if we've never paid attention to this before, it's very foreign. So I give some mm -hmm. samples, but I also really encourage people to, you know, honor your unique body and your symptoms may not be the same as the general ones. So um, I give a blank scale as well for people to kind of fill out and, and do on their own. Um, and I think that the scale is important too, and to look at hunger separately from fullness, not just as opposite ends of the same scale, because there's so much variety there. And I think that people tend to often get caught in thinking I'm either hungry or I'm full and it can be harder to find those like in between points as well. So, you know, again, it's really just about like the noticing and the observation. There's no goal here. It's not about like, this is the magical place of fullness that you have to stop eating or like, Oh, we start eating when you're this number hunger on the hunger scale, but to just start to get more familiar with the cues that your body's sending out about hunger and fullness. Yeah. And, and what's so interesting is I actually, it's a personal story here. Why not? Um, I got in touch with my own hunger after I, I actually had like a colon surgery in June of 2020. And after that, I became like acutely aware of the movement in my stomach. And I was like, oh, this is what, this is what hunger feels like um, after that experience. And that was groundbreaking for me. Now I'm like, I always know when I'm hungry and I always respond to it because it's magic that I have a stomach and a colon that work. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And sometimes it is the experience of, you know, having something shift in your body or something that's not working well in your body to start to come back in such a more compassionate way and to appreciate and have gratitude for our body and what it does do. Yeah. And the compassion part, I think is, is really, I mean, we could go through your book, like section mm -hmm. by section and I would love to, but you also get 
you get to this wonderful point after like getting back in tune with the cues of your body for hunger and for fullness and then kind of setting yourself free um, mm-hmm. to experience hunger and what you like to eat, but then also giving people the tools to have compassion for if they are air quotes bad. Um, can, can you talk through that, those compassion tools? Yeah. So I think compassion is one of them, you know, it, it, it's hand in hand with mindfulness and it's really like a, an outgrowth of mindfulness practices as compassion practices. And I think that again, that's one of the most transformative things that we can do. What we find is that like most people are really hard on themselves. And we tend to believe that if we're harsh on ourselves, if we kind of like beat ourselves up emotionally and do this whole, like, you know, no pain, no gain mentality, then we're going to change and that we need to, you know, give ourselves like tough love and and tell ourselves all the ways that we're not good enough and that we're falling short to be able to transform ourselves into, you know, the swan we want to be. And like (laughs) that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when we're hard on ourselves, it makes us feel stuck because, you know, it's essentially, you know, we're, we get kind of just stuck in the, the shame cycles around that. And when we can shift away from the shame and compassion is one of the most powerful ways to do that. We often hear the phrase that compassion is the antidote to shame. Um, That can help us, you know, heal our relationship with our body, with food, with ourselves through kindness. And that's where change happens from. And, you know, we see this really clearly. I think if we look at kids, if you look at a, a kid, you know, most people, you know, see that if you yell at a kid, you, you know, traumatize them, you abuse them, you know, that's not the path to health and wellness and success for children. Kids who are abused become traumatized. They're scared. They're, you know, in many ways stuck. Of course, healing is possible and resiliency, but the the best kind of parenting is parenting where we are showing our children that they are loved, that they are good enough, that they are fundamentally okay and safe. And the same thing applies to us. And that is through, you know, we, we get there through compassion to show ourselves that we are loved, that we are safe, that we are good enough. Um, it could be hard to get there, but I, I do think that like mindfulness and intentional compassion practices can be really helpful in this. And in terms of also just recognizing the inner dialogue. And again, it doesn't have to be you know, flipping that thought of like, I hate the way I look in these jeans too. These jeans look fabulous, but maybe it can be meeting the thought of, you know, I hate the way I look in these jeans with compassion and saying, wow, that's, that's a really painful thought that you're having right now. How can I care for myself? How can I offer myself the kindness that I might offer a best friend or a child or a pet or whoever? Yeah. And you, you talk about actually, like I love revisiting some of these concepts in your book too, because a lot of them were covered in an intro psych class I took in college that I loved, um, including like learned helplessness that you're talking about now, which, um, we see in animals and children who are faced with like punishment and abusive thoughts and, 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 this. So I, what's interesting is when you first started talking, I jotted down in my little notebook, like abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. It feels like a lot of us have this abusive relationship with diets where they don't work and we keep coming back. Yeah. And I do think that there's a lot of overlap. I'm always hesitant to make that direct comparison because of course, like dieting is not the same as being in an abusive relationship, but there is a dynamic that feels very kind of, you know, stuck in that cycle where we're looking for something. And I talk a little bit in the book to myself, having been in an emotionally abusive relationship and feeling kind of some of the similarities there in terms of this yearning, this trying to get something from someone who really ultimately was never able to give it to me and kind of, you know, kept making us believe that it's, it's our fault that we're not getting that thing that we want. And that if we can just change and be good enough, then we'll earn the love and care of, you know, dieting or whatever this thing is that we're these goodies that we're trying to get. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all kind of an illusion. Like, you know, one thing that I came to see is that those things don't exist. That good life that we've been promised, if we just get the diet right, like, it, it doesn't exist in that way that we've been promised in terms of out there where it exists is within us. Like we can give ourselves that good life now, but this idea that, you know, if we just lose X amount of pounds, we're going to get all the goodies. This is why we see people, you know, 
always feeling like they need to lose more and more weight because we get down to that weight that we thought everything good in our life was going to materialize at, and we don't get those things. And we're like, well, it must have to be another few pounds. It must have to be, you know, the next dress size down. Yeah. And at the time of this airing, it'll be the end of January. Um, So we thought it was fully appropriate to offer an option to humans instead of setting a resolution to shrink. Why don't you add something to your life? Like add some love (laughs) to your life. Add um, something like this. So I cannot recommend enough your book, The Diet-Free Revolution. I'm holding it up, even though people at home aren't going to see it. Um, and you have some incredible resources on your website. Can you talk through some of what's available there? A lot of it's free. Yeah. So we have, um, I actually just came out with a brand new free resource, which is a video explaining a little bit about the differences between mindful eating and intuitive eating. So this is a question I get a lot, like a lot of people do intuitive eating and how is mindful eating different? And there's a lot of similarity, a lot of differences, but I do kind of like a a mini deep dive into that in, in that video. So you can sign up, um, it should all be compiled at the antidietplan.com. Um, there's that, I have a five-day intro to mindful eating program, free series that you can sign up for. Um, And then there's also a webinar about why diets fail and what you can do instead. So you can get all of that on uh, theantidietplan.com. I also offer a signature six-week mindful eating course, which is the anti-diet plan. You can find information on that website as well. And we will offer links to all of this in the show notes as well um, to Dr. Connison's website too. So anything else I didn't ask you about that you think is important for folks to know as they're adopting an anti-diet lifestyle? I think the most important thing, which hopefully we covered is, you know, just to kind of give yourself grace to understand that this is a hard process. We didn't, you know, get here overnight. We're not going to get there overnight, but to just try to be gentle with yourself, you know, we're all kind of learning and trying to find what works best. If you find yourself stuck in the shoulds, that's something to examine as well. It it can be really um, hard for people to grapple with the idea that like, there is no one right way. You know, people often say, well, when should I stop eating or what should I eat on this? And it's really about learning to listen to your body and allowing that to be your guide. And I always tell people when in doubt, come back to self-compassion. Self-compassion will almost always lead you in the right direction. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of We Got Goals and a SweatLife.com production. Thanks to Dr. Alexis Conison for being our guest this week and sharing her expertise with us. Thanks to Ryan Deffitt for editing. And thanks to you, dear listener, for being a part of this deep dive. 